1: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, sexual assault, and violence. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Some say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's fear. We approach things we love and avoid things we fear. Love is the attractive end of a magnet and fear is the ultimate repellent, positive and negative. But sometimes, love and fear are one and the same. That was the case for Gwen Graham and Kathy Wood. Their romantic relationship was fraught with fear. Fear inflicted by domestic abuse and fear of losing each other. It was this fear that turned them to murder. They thought that by engaging in the unthinkable, they would be forever bonded, their fears erased. As terror prevailed, however, their romance expired. And so did their willingness to hide their dark secret – a love soured by fear. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and urology behind heartless medical killers.
2: I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to offer some medical insight into the final installment of our story of Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham, those misguided nurses' aides who dabbled in mischief, mind-altering medicinals, and murder. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast
1: for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Gwen Graham and Kathy Wood, the chaotic lovers who murdered their patients while working as nursing home aides in a suburb of Grand Rapids, Michigan. In this episode, we'll explore Kathy and Gwen's string of cold-blooded killings in the late 1980s, their unsuccessful attempts to confess, and the nasty breakup that led to their prosecution. All this and more, coming up. Stay with us. In January 1987, a 20-year-old nurse's aide, who we'll call Janet Sawyer, was working at Alpine Manor in Walker, Michigan. After long days providing care to the elderly, Janet escaped to late-night drinking games with her work friends. They'd gather after their shifts to blow off steam, venting about the day's happenings. One evening, Janet was at a co-worker's apartment when one of her colleagues, Kathy Wood, began to dance. Janet noticed that Kathy's movement was awkward, but Kathy didn't seem to mind. She'd already demanded that her girlfriend, Gwen Graham, leave the room while she got her groove on. When Gwen returned, however, Janet stood up and jokingly mocked Kathy's dancing. It was a jest at Kathy's expense, and even though Gwen was dating Kathy, she was amused. Acting on a sudden attraction, Gwen reached for Janet's nylon stocking and ran away with it. Janet chased after her, laughing. It seemed Gwen and Janet were enjoying a game of cat and mouse. Kathy watched, unamused, as her girlfriend flirted with another woman. Before long, Kathy stormed out in a huff. But Gwen didn't care. In fact, she spent the night with Janet. It was an act of betrayal. But Gwen couldn't help but feel happier in the presence of someone who wasn't as controlling as Kathy. The next day, Gwen told an irate Kathy that she had been drunk and couldn't remember what had happened with Janet. But a seed of jealousy had been planted, and Cathy suspected that Gwen was cheating on her. This knowledge pushed Cathy's desperate grip on Gwen into a stranglehold. In late winter of 1987, 23-year-old Gwen Graham and 24-year-old Cathy Wood's relationship hit the rocks. Reeling from her jealousy of Gwen's affair, Cathy made efforts to strengthen her own bond with Gwen. For Cathy, that meant a vicious plan that would bind them eternally. They'd kill patients at the nursing home where they worked, so their victim's first initials, in order, spelled out the word murder. Gwen apparently agreed to her domineering girlfriend's plot, and in January 1987, she smothered an elderly patient named Marguerite Chambers while Kathy kept a lookout. In many ways, it was like the times Gwen's father instructed her to mercy kill her dogs. Desensitized to violence, Gwen simply carried it out like a chore without truly weighing the consequences. Though at first, there were no consequences. No one at Alpine Manor suspected that Marguerite Chambers had been murdered. Patients passed away all the time, which made it that much easier for the couple to continue their lethal duet. In early February of 1987, Kathy and Gwen pursued their second victim, but realized they had to abandon their game of spelling murder with initials. They couldn't find any patient whose name started with U. Instead, they set their sights on 95-year-old Myrtle Luce, a woman suffering from what the physicians called
2: organic brain syndrome. Organic brain syndrome is a term that's been used to refer to any cognitive disorder that has a physiological foundation as opposed to an etiology that's purely mental. For example, some causes for Organic Brain Syndrome, or OBS, include brain injuries caused from trauma, long-term drug and alcohol use, breathing and cardiovascular disorders, infections, and cancer. If someone develops a brain tumor, for instance, they can become drastically compromised because their brain functioning on a cellular level becomes disrupted. They may demonstrate problems with balance and movement, sudden aggressive behavior or anger, and issues with memory and cognition. OBS can also be the result of degenerative brain disorders like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and Huntington's disease. The term organic brain syndrome actually has roots in psychiatry and isn't really used much anymore. OBS was a label originally intended to separate patients who were mentally impaired by physical abnormalities from patients with psychiatric disorders. An example would be the difference between someone with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, from physical trauma, and someone with schizophrenia. OBS is now an outdated term because we currently have a better scientific understanding of the brain's neurochemical relationship to mental illness. Schizophrenia, for example, involves a documented imbalance in dopamine, a neurotransmitter tied to things like mood and cognition. It's absolutely possible that Myrtle's brain condition may have made her an easy target for Gwen and Kathy. It's also clear that her age would have made her weak and unable to really fight back. That February day, Gwen and
1: Kathy likely saw Myrtle as feeble prey. They callously pinched the old woman's nose shut to see how much she would struggle. She didn't struggle much, but for whatever reason, The two didn't kill Myrtle in the moments that followed. Later, after Kathy and Gwen had left the room, another nurse's aide noticed blood dripping from Myrtle's nose. She wiped up the blood, assuming it was a simple nosebleed. Tragically, Myrtle was unable to tell the aide she'd been assaulted. She had no way to ask for help. This was also the case for their next victim. On February 7th, Kathy and Gwen attempted to suffocate a 77-year-old patient named Donald Randall. Gwen tried to press his nostrils closed and hold his jaw shut, but Randall fought for his life by keeping his mouth open until she gave up. However, after the attack, he couldn't report the incident to a supervisor because an earlier stroke had made it difficult for him to communicate. Disappointed, kathy and gwen returned to poor myrtle loose the woman whose nose they pinched just days earlier on february 10th myrtle died the same way as marguerite chambers gwen pinched her nostrils shut with one washcloth while holding her jaw closed with a second it's unclear whether kathy provided lookout for this murder as she had done for marguerite in any case gwen didn't get caught. When Myrtle was found dead in her bed, the facility's management didn't think much of it. If there had been an investigation, detectives may have noticed that the last nurse's aide who seemed to have been with Myrtle was Pat Ritter. Her signature adorned Myrtle's chart, but Pat
2: Ritter never showed up to work that day. These days, it's much harder to forge patient health records. Today, the vast majority of healthcare facilities, including nursing homes, have EMR systems or electronic medical records. This means that viewing charts are password protected and only accessible to relevant healthcare professionals. In 2021, it's unlikely that Myrtle's chart could have been forged at all if the facility had an EMR system in place because each practitioner's entry and confirming signature is password protected. However, this doesn't rule out the possibility of password theft by whatever means it's more likely that a chart would be doctored in facilities that still use physical or paper charts. If a phony signature somehow did work its way into a medical chart today, it probably wouldn't even be spotted unless there was a suspicious outcome in a patient's care. Charts can also be scrutinized when a new doctor or specialist consults, when there's a report of malpractice, or when someone's cause of death is questionable. In regards to our story, Alistair, had there been an obvious reason to examine Myrtle's chart, the inconsistency may have been noticed and could likely have launched an investigation into her death. Myrtle's death was thought to have been the
1: result of a heart attack, and her family soon cremated her. With that, any hard evidence of foul play was wiped. No one questioned the forged chart and Kathy and Gwen were free to kill again. Just six days later, on February 16th, Alpine Manor staff found a patient named May Mason dead in her room. The aide assigned to her could hardly believe it. May had been functioning fine just two hours earlier. Though nearly all the nurses' aides on staff stopped by the room to peek at May's lifeless body, Kathy and Gwen didn't bother. Possibly because they'd already seen it and were busy plotting their next murder. Certainly not because they weren't at Alpine Manor. Though they were known to play pranks on patients and co-workers, show up to work drunk, and make out in patient rooms, no one could deny that the two put in long hours. Gwen especially was reported to work harder than just about anyone else during february gwen worked 28 shifts in what should have been a 20 shift month and at alpine manor where the turnover rate of nurses aides hovered around 66 percent kathy and gwen were a welcome anomaly for management their loyalty was a godsend despite night house supervisor tish prescott's attempts to separate them Gwen and Kathy always found a way to work together, and no one put together that when the pair did take time off, it was usually right after a patient's death. For example, on February 26th, Kathy and Gwen worked the same shift and murdered a patient named Belle Picard. Then they both took the 27th off. Again, no one noticed anything suspicious. And perhaps this new pattern became as mundane as their jobs used to be. Because sometime during the spring, the murderous duo invited their mutual friend and former colleague Dawn Mail to Cathy's house for a social evening. Out of the blue, Cathy and Gwen confessed that they had murdered a patient. Gwen said she had smothered the patient with a pillow while Cathy stood guard. Dawn assumed the couple was playing a twisted mind game again or involving her in one of their stupid pranks. Gwen and Kathy's confession had fallen on deaf ears. The disappointing moments likely turned Gwen introspective. Unable to garner shock from her closest friends, she began to feel as though everything she ever did was for Kathy's satisfaction. And as the winter of 1987 turned to spring, Gwen was quickly becoming resentful of the woman who had roped her into an awful scheme. Kathy was no fool. She could feel Gwen pulling away. Still desperate to salvage their bond, Kathy likely did the only thing she knew would infuse their relationship with intensity once more. She pursued another victim. In early April, one of Alpine Manor's most popular patients had taken a nasty turn. Edith Cook had been favoured for her cheery, positive attitude. But an outbreak
2: of gangrene in her feet changed all that. Gangrene is tissue death after a loss of blood circulation, usually the result of a severe infection. It can attack many different parts of the body, externally and internally, but usually ends up in the limbs, fingers, and toes. Because our bodily tissues depends on oxygen and nutrients to survive, diminished or impaired blood flow can cause them to die. Dead tissue can then become gangrenous and eventually rot away. For this reason, people with blood vessel or vascular compromise from diseases like atherosclerosis, diabetes and high blood pressure are at higher risk for developing gangrene. Infection is a common catalyst for gangrene because if untreated with antibiotics, these bacteria will cause these tissues to die. So the person most at risk would be someone with one of these underlying circulatory conditions who also had an open wound that became infected. Not only would their tissue be harmed by the invading bacteria, it would also be compromised by an inadequate supply of oxygenated blood to help fight the infection. Gangrene can be extremely painful, and cause tissues to turn black, deep red, purple, and dark blue. It can additionally lead to blisters, swelling, pus, and a very foul-smelling discharge in the affected area. The odor from gangrene is particularly difficult to tolerate, and it's really hard to cover up. The best bet for successfully treating a patient with gangrene would be to quickly address the underlying condition. This is usually accomplished with surgery by removing the dead tissue, restoring adequate blood flow, and initiating the appropriate antibiotics. Gangrene is excruciating for the person suffering from it, but it's no picnic for the people treating it either. Edith's
1: pain became unbearable when her toes turned black and rotted. The smell seemed to permeate the entire facility. And so did Edith's frequent cries for help. The stench and painful screams proved too much for her nurse's aides. On April 7th, Gwen Graham and Kathy Wood smothered Edith just as they had their previous victims. Afterward, Kathy was delighted to unpack the crime with Gwen, but Gwen didn't seem so interested anymore. Her sights were set on another woman. Coming up, Kathy and Gwen's relationship implodes.
0: Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals. Like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
1: By the late spring of 1987, 24-year-old Gwen Graham and 25-year-old Kathy Wood had murdered several elderly patients at Alpine Manor Nursing Home in Michigan. But if Kathy hoped their dark secret would keep them committed to one another, she was mistaken. Gwen was having an affair with another nurse's aide, Janet Sawyer. What had started out as an innocent flirtation had quickly snowballed into something powerful. At only 20 years old, Janet had an innocence about her that Gwen appreciated. A former cheerleader who had lived a sheltered life, Janet had only been in love once before with a man who turned out to be gay. So, in many regards, Gwen was Janet's first. And this only intensified their affair. During the spring of 1987, they met two or three times a week, usually early in the morning while Kathy was still working. Gwen felt an intense love for Janet, just as she once had for Kathy, and Janet reciprocated her passion. Still, Gwen maintained her partnership with Kathy. A long history of infidelity had seemingly left her with no sense of guilt. If anything, Her feelings of anger towards Kathy grew as she shared them with Janet. In late April, Janet met with Gwen in the parking lot of a supermarket, expecting a rendezvous. But Gwen had something different in mind. With tears in her eyes, Gwen admitted to murdering six patients. Despite Gwen's emotional display, Janet didn't believe her. Like Gwen's friend Dawn, Janet figured it was a prank. She thought Kathy was behind the story, forcing Gwen to make up a ridiculous lie to ensure Gwen's loyalty. So Janet simply sympathized with Gwen and further vilified Kathy. Gwen, it seemed, could not be convinced that Kathy alone was the bad seed. She would occasionally slip confessions of murder into everyday conversations with Janet. Even then, Janet turned a blind eye, expecting that Gwen would give up the lies of her past when she fully moved on from Kathy. That proved difficult for Gwen, but changes at work would soon push her over the edge. In May 1987, Kathy was promoted to charge tech.
2: Supervisory roles are often given to experienced nurses and nurses' aides to help with the workflow and oversee staff members. Charge techs can basically be looked at as nurse supervisors who themselves work under the facility's oversight managers. Their job usually involves directing employees, setting schedules for nurses and aides, updating and logging medication inventory and helping with conflict resolution among staff. In this way, they should project some authority, be organized, and demonstrate a certain level of emotional intelligence and kindness. Someone could be promoted to this position for reasons that include strong job performance, seniority, or being the most qualified person needed to fill a vacant slot. Ideally, healthcare employees are promoted based on their hard work, skill, and experience. However, no industry is perfect, and sometimes bad apples do get picked for the pie.
1: Kathy was in no way equipped for the role of charge tech, as she'd engaged in malpractice and murdered her patients multiple times over the last year alone. But no one at the nursing home knew that besides Gwen. Now, the promotion only fed Kathy's sense of superiority. Some nurses resented this. A rumor quickly spread that Kathy was promoted because of her abusiveness. As a charge tech, she wouldn't have to interact with patients as much. But she could better instigate the drama she craved. According to author Lowell Caulfield, the position gave Kathy official clout. She became more demanding. She belittled other aides. She made room checks, piling patients' clothes outside the doors of rooms she decided were not tidy enough. She threw temper tantrums, once flinging a patient's eating tray down the hall. One aide attempted to report Kathy to management. However, the supervisor was one of Kathy's allies. She allegedly ripped up the report on spot in front of the aide. Toxic behavior ran rampant throughout the facility and Gwen, in particular, was growing tired of it. For one thing, Gwen was upset that Kathy had been promoted over her. Everyone knew Gwen worked harder and caused less trouble. The rumor that Kathy had been promoted on account of her nastiness only further affirmed Gwen's existing belief that Kathy was evil. In the hopes of escaping her old hunting grounds and her volatile relationship unscathed, Gwen quit Alpine Manor and applied for a new job at a temp company called Porter Medic. She began working there on July 1st. But as much as Gwen wanted to put her past and Kathy behind her, it seemed Kathy was unwilling to stay there. The two apparently stayed together even after Gwen quit Alpine Manor. Without the murders bringing drama to their hollow dynamic, their passion quickly deteriorated. This loss of intensity fostered a desire for escape in both Gwen and Kathy. Gwen had long used alcohol, drugs, and self-harm to numb her mental anguish. Getting high was a surefire way to keep the pain at bay, at least temporarily. One night that summer, Gwen took LSD while she, Janet, and Kathy were spending time together. To dull her own senses, Kathy, had gotten drunk, but their altered states quickly opened the door to violence. While riding in Kathy's truck, both Kathy and Gwen began to throw fists. Gwen's psychedelic state only made her more reckless. She jumped out of Kathy's truck to escape,
2: endangering herself further. Besides a guaranteed increase in blood pressure and body temperature, lysergic acid diethylamide can also cause visual and or auditory hallucinations. This is because LSD works on the brain's serotonin system, which plays a major role in mood and sensory perception. Specifically, with the use of functional magnetic resonance imaging, or FMRI, we now know that LSD stimulates the serotonin 2A receptors, which are specifically thought to facilitate hallucinogenic activity. This essentially means that LSD creates a wildly skewed interpretation of reality, and this is where the term tripping comes from. Research on LSD even shows that it activates mental processes that look similar to those involved in dreaming. Acid is a very powerful hallucinogenic, so it can logically have an effect on our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Because the drug alters the normal thought process, LSD trips can be really unpredictable and may potentially cause major fear and distress. If someone beginning an acid trip is already uncomfortable or upset, there's a good chance that these feelings will become seemingly more severe and disturbing. It's likely that Gwen's behavior that evening was exacerbated by her existing anxiety, combined with the LSD abuse.
1: As Gwen tried to run away, Kathy grabbed her and threw her into the back of the truck, continuing the brawl. Fearful, Janet began driving, hoping Kathy and Gwen would stop beating each other up before matters got worse. When the truck finally stopped, Gwen Leapt out and ran into a cemetery to hide. Kathy managed to catch her and drag her back home, but the night brought a climactic end to their treacherous dynamic. By July, Gwen pulled the plug. She moved out of Kathy's place and in with Janet and their friend Lisa Lynch. Kathy did not take the breakup well. She got into the habit of driving by Lisa's mobile home at night, watching Lisa and Gwen, or Gwen and Janet. One morning, Gwen woke to find Kathy standing at the foot of her bed. Kathy didn't hurt Gwen, but the message was clear. There was no escaping Kathy as long as Gwen stayed in Michigan so Gwen made plans to return to Texas in August. When Kathy found out, she confronted Janet at the mobile home. She threatened to have Gwen arrested or even killed, which Janet thought was crazy. Despite this, Gwen still allowed Kathy to speak to her privately. What they said to one another is not known, but after their conversation, Gwen packed a suitcase and moved back to Kathy's house. She explained to Janet that Kathy had something on her and she couldn't escape. Later, Kathy forced Gwen to call Janet and say mean, insulting things. She allegedly tied Gwen up and acted as if she wanted to smother her with a pillow. Then, Kathy sexually assaulted Gwen with a hunting rifle. According to Gwen, Kathy's violence was a result of her jealousy. Still, Gwen wouldn't let herself continue to be a victim. Just one week after she left Lisa's trailer, Gwen returned to Janet and swore she and Kathy were now just friends. There was nothing to worry about. Gwen would go to the movies or to dinner with Kathy a few times to smooth things over and then she and Janet would go to Texas and start a new life. After Gwen left in early August, Kathy called her ex-husband, Ken Wood. Despite their divorce, they still communicated regularly, but Kathy hadn't confided anything about the murders to him yet. Now, convinced that Gwen was leaving her for good, Kathy told Ken that she and Gwen had killed six people. When Gwen or Kathy had confessed to their friends Janet and Dawn, the women had dismissed it as a sick joke. Ken, however, knew immediately that Kathy was telling the truth. After the call, Kathy came over to Ken's apartment and poured her heart out. About the washcloths, the smotherings, even the game to spell murder with victims' names. Kathy hoped that by unburdening herself to Ken, she would get over Gwen. According to Lowell Caulfield, author of Forever and Five Days, Kathy and Gwen's secret had been their bond of love. Now, rejected by Gwen, Kathy was willing to break that bond and make Gwen suffer for it. In a sense, this was the only remaining thing Kathy could do to control Gwen's life. She didn't seem to mind that it would shatter her own in the process. Flawed, Ken attempted to see things from his ex-wife's point of view, but it was hard for him to understand her motives. As though she was emerging from a trance, Kathy looked him in the eye and said that they had done it because it was fun. Ken urged Kathy to talk to a psychologist and get help, but Kathy retaliated defensively. She warned Ken that if he called the police, she would kill herself. Ken had a choice to make. Turn Kathy into the police and risk her self-harm, or keep her dark secret and risk endangering more lives. Coming up, Ken makes his choice. Now, back to the story. By August 1987, the romance between 26-year-old Kathy Wood and 25-year-old Gwen Graham was dead. Both women had confessed their murders to close friends, but no one had believed them until Kathy told her ex-husband Ken Wood. Ken was far from pleased with Kathy, but for the time being, he decided to keep the secret to himself. Meanwhile, Gwen panicked. Though she'd cut Kathy off for the most part, her past seemed impossible to abandon. She worried that Kathy had kept letters between them that detailed their crimes. If Gwen left for Texas, she was certain Kathy would turn those incriminating files over to the police. Trying to garner allies, Gwen told her roommate, Lisa Lynch, about the murders. She said she had smothered Edith Cook with a pillow because she couldn't stand the stench of her gangrene or her screaming. Lisa also dismissed the confession, thinking it had to be another one of Kathy's mind games. Perhaps it was Lisa's belief in Gwen's innocence that finally encouraged Gwen to try and run off to Tyler, Texas. She and Janet packed their bags, but before they left town, Gwen insisted on swinging by Kathy's to say goodbye. She and Kathy parted with tears in their eyes. Though Ken Wood sat on the knowledge that his ex-wife and her ex-lover were murderers for 14 months, he couldn't stay silent forever. Once he accepted that Kathy wouldn't turn herself in or seek any professional help, he decided to speak to authorities. On October 6, 1988, Ken Wood went to a police station in Wyoming, Michigan. He told Detective Tom Freeman everything Kathy had told him about the murders committed at Alpine Manor. He also mentioned Gwen Graham and said that he believed she and Kathy had at one point planned to kill employees at the nursing home. The next day, October 7th, Detective Freeman picked up Kathy at Alpine Manor for questioning. She seemed unbothered and commented that she wanted to get her coat before she left. At the station, Freeman told Kathy about the bomb Ken had dropped the day before. Kathy glibly dismissed it all as a big practical joke. But when Freeman said that he had already secured a search warrant and the police were looking through Alpine Manor's
2: records, Kathy promised to give him the truth. The records from Alpine Manor would have been extensive and would have taken a long time to review, but they'd be critical to building a case. Patients' records in any medical domain are always considered confidential, but not when they're relevant to a criminal investigation. I know doctors who've had to turn medical records over when their patients were implicated in crimes, and the process is pretty straightforward. There's usually no overt conflict between the patient and their clinician in these scenarios because it's a medical professional's legal requirement to cooperate in criminal investigations. Healthcare practitioners can be useful during a murder investigation in a number of ways beyond providing medical documents. They may assist with identifying victims, determining the time and cause of death, and providing other forms of medical forensic expertise. Medical professionals can even help after an investigation, during criminal trials, and this is something I've actually done. In these scenarios, lawyers involved with a prosecution or defense team often need to identify a medical practitioner as an expert in the field to support their arguments. Before a trial, this expert is then asked to evaluate and provide an opinion germane to the legal team's argument. If this opinion aligns with the team's position, the physician is called for a deposition, which most often leads to an appearance in the ensuing trial. Healthcare providers in this situation are paid at their hourly rates until the court dismisses them. This is just another way medical specialists can be essential at different stages in criminal cases.
1: With the nursing home in cooperation, Kathy must have known that the jig was up. She told Detective Freeman that Gwen Graham had killed several patients between January and June of 1987. Kathy didn't hesitate to throw her former lover under the bus. According to author Lowell Caulfield, from the moment she was approached by the authorities, Kathy did everything she could to spin the story so that it seemed Gwen was the mastermind. Kathy also seemed delighted by the chance to tell a good story. She recalled standing in the doorway, watching as Gwen killed their first victim, Marguerite Chambers. She claimed Gwen had found the whole thing amusing. She had done it to relieve tension. And according to Kathy, Gwen had threatened to shoot her if she told anyone. The next day, October 8th, Detective Freeman got Kathy to write a statement largely adhering to what she had already told him. On October 9th, Kathy was suspended from Alpine Manor. On October 12th, Detective Freeman and Deputy Chief Bill Brown flew down to Tyler, Texas with a warrant to search Gwen's home. Gwen called Kathy's stories a game and a joke. But when Freeman mentioned the name Marguerite Chambers, Gwen's mouth literally fell open. At that, Gwen said she wanted a lawyer and refused to say more. On October 27th, Kathy came forward with more information to clear things up. In an interrogation room, Kathy admitted that she and Gwen had decided to kill patients at Alpine Manor with the intent of spelling the word murder. She said the plot had been Gwen's idea, while she had just helped select the victims. Kathy also confessed that they'd taken souvenirs from the murders. Jewelry, a sock, even a pair of dentures. But they'd since tossed the memorabilia. Though Kathy freely divulged these specifics, she denied any deeper motive for killings and insisted she couldn't remember when asked for important details. With Gwen and Kathy under investigation, the press galvanized the case. In turn, Lisa Lynch, Dawn Mail, and other nurses' aides came out of the woodwork to tell police what they knew. Their testimonies conflicted with Kathy's, suggesting it was Kathy who'd been manipulating Gwen and that Kathy was the mastermind behind the murders. As they spoke to more people, investigators still weren't sure about the exact number of victims. Kathy had originally said it was six, then eight, then five. But they at least had enough evidence to bring forward preliminary charges. On December 4, 1988, 25 year old Gwen and 26 year old Kathy were arrested and charged with their crimes. Gwen for the murder of Edith Cook. Kathy for the murders of Edith Cook and Marguerite Chambers. As a result, Gwen was extradited to Michigan. Once charged, Kathy pled guilty to second degree murder and conspiracy and agreed to testify against Gwen. Once Kathy's account came to light, Gwen was hit with new criminal charges, conspiracy to murder and the killings of Marguerite Chambers, Myrtle Luce, May Mason, and Belle Bacard. During a preliminary hearing on April 19, 1989, Kathy took the stand to testify against Gwen. She claimed the idea to murder patients had been Gwen's. When asked why she became involved, Kathy said that she thought Gwen was the first person to love her and she didn't want to lose her. The media took that tidbit and ran with it. News outlets described the pair's motivation as a lesbian love bond. Gwen was in the courtroom as Kathy gave her testimony. Throughout, she betrayed no emotion. But later, when Dawn Mayle took the stand and recounted the fights she used to have with Gwen, Gwen covered her mouth with her hand and started giggling. In that moment, Dawn realized that Gwen was even more mentally unstable than she had thought, and Gwen's mental state seemed to only get worse in jail. When Detective Freeman went to retrieve Gwen from her holding cell for the first day of the trial, he found her hollering in terror. She was afraid of being sucked into the toilet. When Kathy took the stand again after the trial began on September 11, 1989, she played into Gwen's mentally unstable image. Kathy repeated, It was Gwen's idea to kill. Kathy had just gone along with it. Kathy also claimed Gwen had been abusive during their sexual encounters. Despite this, Kathy also admitted that she never loved anybody the way she loved Gwen. Evidently, Kathy was attempting to garner sympathy. According to author Lowell Corfield, Gwen later claimed that when she passed Kathy's holding cell during a break in the trial, Kathy laughed at her. When Gwen took the stand, she denied killing anyone, insisting the whole thing had been a sick joke that had gotten out of hand. It was a weak argument. On September 20th, just over a week since the start of the trial, the jury began deliberations. They lasted a mere six hours. Gwen Graham was found guilty on all six counts. On November 3rd, she was given a life sentence for each of the five counts of murder as well as a life term for the count of conspiracy to commit murder without the possibility of parole. When she heard the verdict, she had no discernible reaction. For her guilty plea to second-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, Cathy was sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison. According to one inmate, prison had little effect on Kathy. She continued playing her mind games, manipulating other prisoners into giving her money, food, and toiletries. The inmate even accused Kathy of sexually and physically abusing another prisoner. Kathy also apparently bragged openly about the case. Once, when other inmates tricked Kathy into getting high, Kathy said she had committed the murders on her own and framed Gwen to get back at Gwen for breaking up with her. In 1990, Gwen was interviewed by author Lowell Caulfield and she referred to Kathy as a very unhappy girl. She said that some days she felt like strangling Kathy and on others she felt she still had feelings for her. She agreed to psychological testing and was deemed to have a low-functioning,
2: borderline personality. Borderline personality disorder is a mental health condition whose symptoms can include a distorted sense of self, a strong fear of abandonment, unusually strong emotional reactions, self-harm, and other dangerous behaviors. Although causes aren't fully understood, it's considered to be a mental health disorder, often genetic, caused by irregularities in areas of the brain related to emotional regulation and impulse control, specifically the amygdala and hippocampus. There's also solid evidence indicating that people with borderline personality disorder have dysfunctional serotonergic systems. When looking at Gwen, it's possible that her brain chemistry had an impact on her crimes. Aside from expressing the symptoms already mentioned, Gwen engaged in risky behavior, seemed to have an undulating value system, and had problems with emotional recklessness and impulsivity. These behaviors, unlike what we've identified as serotonin issues, are associated with a dopamine imbalance. Given all of this, it's not improbable that Gwen's mental health problems provoked her to act out criminally and become submissive to Kathy's whims. According to author Lowell Corfield, Deputy Police Chief Bill Brown of
1: Walker, Michigan, told a companion that without Kathy, the murders never would have happened. Gwen was the killer, but Kathy was the puppet master.
2: The question of who is more responsible is a difficult one to answer. While it's unimaginable to think how someone could come up with such disturbing ideas, it's just as hard to understand someone appreciating and carrying them out. One angle here is how this case speaks to the power of infatuation. When two people are attracted to each other, they both experience an intense release of dopamine, norepinephrine, and oxytocin, which are neurochemicals that combine to make us euphoric, excited, and emotionally high. Because of this, people in passionate relationships can be chaotic and behave very irrationally. It only makes sense that two mentally and emotionally disturbed people could become collectively destructive with these neurochemicals in the mix. It's tempting to say that in their thrill-seeking relationship, Kathy and Gwen lost sight of the importance of empathy. But the sad truth is that they probably never had much to begin with.
1: In October,
2: 2019,
1: 59-year-old Kathy Wood was granted parole and permitted to move to South Carolina to live with her sister. According to the terms of her parole, she is barred from working with the elderly. Gwen Graham remains imprisoned. Despite their different fates, Kathy and Gwen remain inextricably linked. While the power of attachment can be a catalyst for growth and healing, the story of Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham reveals the harm that can happen when love turns toxic. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Gwen Graham and Kathy Wood, among the many sources we used, we found Forever in Five Days the Chilling True Story of Love, Betrayal, and Serial Murder in Grand Rapids, Michigan by Lowell Corfield, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast like Medical Murders. For free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Tricvedotti, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Devin Hughes with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
0: Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast Limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks... We're exposing the men who were far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.